Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Majority of BC. I am your normal host, Ryan Pinio. And with me today, we have some new recurring hosts, uh, Zoe and Nicole. Nicole Paul. I'm interested in a lot of issues that kind of uh, are on the border of economic and social issues. Cool. And Zoe? Um, I'm really into gender politics and engaging young voters. Uh, Everyone knows me. And our guest today is the MLA for Richmond, Queensboro, uh, Jazz Johal. Welcome, Jazz. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. So um, when we... When we were talking about uh, things to begin with, with yeah. you, we, we wanted to, I think everybody was kind of curious about what it was like um, making the transition from a reporter to an MLA. Maybe if you could shed some light on that. Yeah, it's, um, it, you know, I think um, I'd spent 23 years as a journalist. So that sort of that, that profession, its ethics, its uh, ethos is sort of instilled in you right from the start. And I've always wanted to be a journalist uh, growing up. I mean, I was taking journalism classes back when I was in grade nine. So that was always part of who I was, what I wanted to be. Nicole was going to, do you want to touch on millennials or Zoe? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I'm the oldest one. Besides <laughs> no, I'm possibly, the oldest one. I'm the Gen Xer. <laughs> so maybe I you know. Yeah. I'm like a I'm like a borderline millennial. Older so. millennial. Well, Jazz, the last time I actually saw you was over in Nanaimo a few weeks ago. Um, we were out uh, door knocking for Tony Harris. Yeah. Who, um, I actually think tonight there is a millennial uh, debate going on um, at Vancouver Island University, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were out door knocking, we had actually a number of conversations about some of these issues that whether you call them urban whether you call them millennial issues issues that the BC Liberal Party has been I think struggling to find its identity with mm-hmm. and how to talk about them in ways that I think maybe match up with um, both our traditional values as BC Liberals but as our forward looking mm-hmm. um, what are your thoughts on how we start to make that transition? Well, I, I you know, I have this discussion with our um, our colleagues in the in the caucus, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not a baby boomer, I'm a Gen Xer. So between b- millennials and baby boomers, there's this smaller generation of Gen Xers. So I, I'd like to believe I get where the baby boomers are coming from, and I get I like to believe that I get where the millennials are coming from. And the challenge, I think, I always remind uh, the caucus. The oldest millennial today is 36 or 37 years old. So let's not assume they're 19-year-olds getting out of school, first of all. I said, remind yourselves at 36, 37, where you were. Probably married, mortgage, child, potentially. 18, I think, is actually like the youngest millennial. Dep- like it's trend- Depending, yes. Yeah. But the, the perception is they're all 18. Yeah. <laughs> when really, yeah, right. the oldest one is 35, 36 now. And they're educated. They're global citizens. They're dealing with the existential challenges of climate change. So we need to talk about policy to specifically um, speak to them. I mean, today, I think in nine out of 10 provinces, Gen X and millennials collectively, they outnumber baby boomers. The only outlier is actually British Columbia. And I think by the time the next election cycle, by 2021, we should be 10 out of 10. Question is, are we getting out to vote uh, collectively to at least uh, at least articulate our concerns? And the challenge has always been government in the last 30 years has been fundamentally concerned about those who vote the most and the biggest um, uh, demographic, and that has been baby boomers. 
And that has been continuing for the last 20 or 30 years. Only now are we sort of getting to that issue where millennials and their concerns are slowly starting to be addressed. The number one way to do that, first of all, is reflect that generation, which means younger candidates. Yeah. Right. And and not just automatically assuming, oh, it's only we just need more millennials. No, it's not that. First of all, we need we do need more millennials. Doesn't mean you forget about baby boomers, a significant portion of the population. But right now, uh, I shouldn't be one of the younger ones in that caucus in my 40s. We should have 30 somethings. Right. <laughs> yeah, That's, yeah. There's a challenge. Um, so we have to I think all political parties, I don't care which ones you are, start skewing younger in candidate selection. And I think Tony Harris is a classic example of yeah. that. We could have just looked for anybody, but we thought Tony really exemplifies um, the new emerging uh, 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 Nanaimo. Uh, he is a, a sixth generation Nanaimoite, so he also comes from very good values. That, that is a word, by the way. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> and he, but, he, but he gets the core values, yeah. the traditional values, right? And so number one is we've got to, we got to chase, chase that generation by, first of all, having them at the caucus level, having that conversation, right? Secondly, I think it's not just a, a millennial-centric um, uh, policy conversation. But certainly a more urban-centric conversation needs to occur. And I'm not saying we ignore 250. I'm from 250. Uh, and there's some dynamic stuff happening in these communities as well. We spent so much energy on LNG, which was the right thing to do because we've got a $40 billion investment. And I think there's going to be more coming still over the next two to three years. We've got more uh, other, other LNG projects potentially moving forward. But I think we didn't do a very good job articulating some of those urban concerns. And the reason I say urban is because 60% of British Columbia lives in the lower mainland. Mm -hmm. And that's right? where the BC Liberals did not do we well. We seats in um, rural BC. We mm -hmm. lost seats. Yeah, look, we have, we've had great, you know, we've had great single parent initiatives. We did great on the tech file. We did an atrocious job articulating it. Yeah, we just right? didn't talk about we it. We didn't talk <laughs> about it. But when, 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 you know, the NDP is pulling in more votes in Richmond, and sorry than they traditionally do. That means we've got work to do. Maple Ridges. Maple Ridges. Yeah, those Langley's, are exactly. Chilliwack, Abbotsford. So how are you speaking there, yeah. to them? And in, like in my riding, the average age, Richmond, Queensboro, is 40. Yeah. It's 40, right? And the conversation still in Victoria, at City Hall level, is still a baby, cent baby boomer-centric conversation. And I bring up that conversation now. Some of my colleagues may not even like it. Some of the other folks on the other side may not like it. But I, you, I, I bring up the term baby boober centric conversation because it has, it does turn into that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying prop rep was the answer because I don't think so at all. I, I've mm -hmm. worked hard against it. But sometimes this is my personal opinion, not the caucus's opinion. I kind of think maybe term limits are something we should have a conversation about. Right. Yeah. Right. We actually yeah, have I, discussed doing an episode yeah. on this. You should. Now, it, it, I'm not saying it's the answer. Yeah. yeah. But I personally believe, you know, I'm coming at this in my 40s after 25 years in the private sector. Um, I'm not doing this for 20 years. I don't think politics should be a career. Mm -hmm. I think politics should be a calling and a public service. You have a set amount of time to do it and then you move on. And that's just my personal opinion. Uh, and I think uh, that's a the nonpartisan comment, because I think those on the other side would feel that way as well. That may be one solution. I'm not saying it's the solution, but I think we need to start asking ourselves, why aren't people not engaged? And it's not just broadly millennials. I look at even ethnicity, South Asian community. It's predominantly, whenever you have a community event, it's predominantly run by men of a baby boomer variety. At one, you exclude a younger generation born and raised here. I was born in India, but raised here. I rarely ever see women 
in positions of power or authority in these communities or representing these communities or articulating the thoughts. So it's beyond just millennials. I just think we need a better job attracting more women, particularly in minority communities. But we've just have not done a good enough job um, collectively in the political sphere, but certainly in BC Liberals, in making these groups feeling welcome. Too, too often it's a tactical conversation than a holistic one. And we've got to start there. Well, it's an interesting topic because with the recent events in Burnaby South at the federal level with Karen Wang having to step down yeah. because of those comments, do we ha as a generation have to look at how we address ethnic politics and getting people out to vote in those communities without making it seem so, like yeah. we're targeting them? Yeah, like I'll, I'll, I'll give you a political answer. But, yes and no. That's my answer. <laughs> what I mean by that, <clears throat> first of all, I've met Karen and Karen's a, a wonderful person. I think the way... Uh, the she, the uh, particular comment was written was probably inelegant. Uh, and I think it was the staffer that did, not to blame the staffer, but I think you don't need to be pointing that out. I think she was reaching out to her core Chinese base and they're citizens, first of all. And it's okay mm -hmm. to do that. Um, but I think that what we need to improve on, I believe, is actually communicating with these uh, communities with our core message. Too often when you have a campaign literature, it's generally English, then conveniently translated to Punjabi, Cantonese, and Mandarin, rather than actually communicating, which means we have to actually have a separate South Asian strategy that speaks to a South Asian ethos and perspective. Chinese community, broadly speaking, really likes a lot of detail uh, in their advertising. South Asians, you want to speak to them, more emotion, right? And I'm broadly generalizing here about a huge swath of the population, but how we communicate with them does matter. Mm -hmm. The How last... do you communicate with any group? Members? Yeah, exactly. Every, every audience mm -hmm. is going to receive a message differently. And that, I think, is one of the nuances of political communications is that you're always going to be targeting different groups with different messages. And it's how you reach out to all these different groups, whether whether your message is going to baby boomers or millennials, whether it's going to women. men versus women yeah. versus different cultures. It's it's all rural versus urban. There is different. You aren't going to go into Prince George with a message about the Massey Tunnel. No, no, you're not. <laughs> you, even when you look at just those regional issues. Right? They're, they're, so. they're, and, they're, and they're significant. But I think when, when you're talking specifically to the South Asian community, You've had this issue of gatekeepers. We're very good at signing mm. up folks in, in, in leadership races and getting the vote out. But these communities are so big, I don't think these folks can deliver the votes as much as we think that they can because there's, it's such a diverse community that you've got generation of kids growing up here. They're not going to listen to an older guard saying, vote this way. The first question you're going to say is, why and who are you? Um, and secondly, like I said, you have a, a much more outspoken, educated younger generation, particularly women, who have a different perspective on some of these issues. And they're not going to be dictated by a couple of older men sitting at a temple. And, and I'm just using the South Asian as a community as an example, but that applies to the Chinese community. They're so diverse between Cantonese and Mandarin. And I have to deal with this in my, in my constituency, mm -hmm. which is 50% Caucasian, 35% Chinese, and they still elected a six foot one brown guy to represent them. <laughs> That's the Canada that we want at the end of the day, right? Right. But it, but but no one's ever talked to me about being South Asian. I mean, they've, they've allowed me into their living rooms for two decades. So there is uh, an understanding. I mean, I was just door knocking before I came here. Um, it's hey, jazz, because it's just you're my MLA. Mm -hmm. And that's where we should be going. But I think that's where you have to pick the right candidates that have at least a strong grasp on public policy and are most comfortable talking to all all of society rather than that is my base. As long as I keep them happy, I don't have to worry about everything else. And that's where we, I think we've fallen, in, fallen into these sort of 
these subgroups. I think it's not just us. It's tribalism, the NDP yeah. and tribalism. And I think you got to be very careful. I mean, the, I noticed over at the uh, the NDP caucus, the seven South Asians, five Chinese Canadians, and millennials. So they're a bit more diverse than we are. And we need to work at that. But when I look at the power and authority, that's where the rubber hits the road. At the mm-hmm. I find about five white men and white one white woman, which would be Carol James. James, yeah. You throw in Jeff Meggs, chief of staff, and I think a couple of other senior advisors. It's about eight one eight white men and one white yeah. woman. That's where power lies. The senior South Asian cabinet minister is Harry Baines. I think now because I'm part of question period prep, I think we've asked him one question in the past year. Ginny Sims significantly more simply because she's Minister of Citizen Services and has a tendency to use her private email when she shouldn't (laughs) and had some fundraising issues with uh, some of the folks that she's invited. But I'm not seeing it's okay to be diverse, but I need to see I need to see them in a mainstream context, having a conversation. Uh, on the issues that they represent. I don't see enough of that. Like with the BC Liberals, I think I've done two interviews with South Asian media, maybe three in the past two years. I've never allowed myself to be ghettoized as a journalist for 23 years with media executives, and I sure the heck ain't going to allow the political class to do that to me. But my colleagues have always made themselves available. Not that I don't do South Asian interviews, but my colleagues uh, have all made themselves available. They do a great job reflecting our values and who who we are, and that's how it should be. So even as a minority, you and as women, it's the same thing. Because I've heard from women, you got to work hard not to ghettoize yourself. Sometimes it's just doing the women's sort of subjects, or the you're going to just do the ethnic media. No, I mean I speak for this party on issues on to the mainstream media, and that's the way it should be. Right. Right. And but we we've got a not that it's I shouldn't be commenting about certain South Asian issues. Yes. But we've allowed ourselves collectively as as a community, I'm talking South Asians, to be ghettoized, and it's, I don't blame anybody but ourselves. We need to be pushing harder. But so when you have candidates just relying on a certain base to get elected, they're automatically going to go to that base and deal with issues specific to that base rather than saying, no, I got something to say on the Massey Bridge, on ride sharing, on spec tax, whatever it may be. And that's where we haven't had the stronger candidates come forward on some of those issues. Uh, oh, well, <laughs> This gets me going, as you can tell. Well, one of the things that you just said that kind of um, actually makes me think a little bit about just looking at my parents who are baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And I think their belief system has actually, especially I would say in the last three to four years, is actually starting to transition and become very influenced by millennial culture, I would say. So I think I don't... should let them hang out with my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Or mine too. (laughs) I, I honestly think that if you were to ask my parents what their number like one of their top issues was housing affordability is one of them. And it's not because they can't afford a house. It's because they want their kids to be able to afford a house. And I think that that transition starts to happen. Um, It happens slowly, except I I think it's as their kids start to get to the point where they like I'm in the same position where the reality is to be in Vancouver and stay in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I will be a long term renter. I will most likely never own property Mm-hmm. with the way that the housing prices are going. But that's my parents, my parents too. They realized, you know, if they, if I wanted to start saving for a house, it should have been when my college fund started. Yeah. But, but that, but I think you're, you raise a very good point. Both of you guys is that the discourse now is moving away from a baby boomer centric discourse to one that is skewing younger, which is affordability. And I heard that at the door as well. And when climate I change. Yeah. And climate change as well, because people see that you see that with the fires in the caribou, you see it globally as well. And that's an issue I covered a lot in, in Asia. So I'm glad that's 
part of our conversation here. But I think I always remind myself that if you want to talk to British Columbians, I always have a term to tap into the zeitgeist. And zeitgeist, what I mean by it is the issues that Im- impact the broader community. And the fact that you bring up the issue of affordability, you're right. When parents see that their kids are struggling to buy a place or rent a place, it's an issue. And I heard a lot of that during the last election campaign. And in, our, in the case of Richmond, it's a question of a $1.5 million, which is tough enough uh, for anybody to afford starting now. And the fact that they get torn down and you've got a monster house put up uh, that just now automatically is $3 million that has a gate. And sometimes those vis- people aren't living there for a while. They may be only coming That's, in for four months. Yeah. And so that adds 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 to the uh, angst and challenge. And it's a diver- and it's a diverse, I mean, it's a diverse population in my writing. They all share that concern. One thing just real quick before we move on. Um, I, I've noticed in the Facebook group I posted about it in a majority of BC before, and there seems to be a, a large divergence of opinions within the B- broader BC liberal community, mm-hmm. mostly on, again, millennials one side of the fence and boomers on the other, at least from my reading of the of the comments. Uh, the issue is, is should strata councils be able to ban rentals? Mm. So... It's there's a lot of estimates out there that there would be anywhere from 20 to 35 percent new rental housing in the lower mainland overnight if a government of the day said strata councils can no longer tell individual strata lot owners they can't long term rent Hmm. short term Airbnb. That's still, you know, up to the the stratas would be under. Yeah. But uh, as I'm sure you can guess, boomers aren't uh, huge fans of it because. Surprise, surprise, boomers control almost all the stratas in British Columbia. <laughs> and young people like myself who are just starting out and own a condo, I'm very much in favor of that because I feel choked out by strata sometimes. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to give you a definitive yes or no there. I mean, I, I understand because I, I, I can understand the, the baby boomers who have bought, assuming it, they don't want rental. They want a certain, they want an owner. They don't want people moving in and out all the time or whatever it may be. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, I get that. But I think we should probably look at that again, simply because of the incredible need for housing, mm-hmm. that it may be something we need to be looking at. But I think you raise a very good point because uh, that's a huge challenge. Right. And the amount of folks moving into the city. I see that in Richmond all the time as well. Um, it's gotten so bad now that I think even... The need for property that you've seen some of these older properties, they get torn down. I've had a couple of times now where daycares have, couldn't find anything, like in my own writing. And the folks that are coming in know that they can put up a, a condo, whatever it may be. And some of these older properties were cheaper, they're affordable. And so you're, mo- you're losing that community space, community space yeah. especially daycares. You know, yeah. I mean, yes, you can find other space, but then the prices are double that. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. But I'm, I am, I share that concern that you have. You're going to have a limited amount of space. Use it, and if that means folks are need to rent. Let's look at that. And I think that's a real issue, an issue. I think the Lib Party should readdress and look at for sure. Um, Jazz, we were uh, we're both Richmondites mm-hmm. or Richmonders. Um, what is it actually? Does anyone know? Is it Richmonders? I always use Richmondites. Richmondites. Yeah. All right. My favorite's Wistillians, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but anyways, uh, as Richmondites, um, I live at the end of Steveston Highway, which we know goes into the pit of hell known as the Massey Tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would guess every year I probably spend, 
I don't know, at least two days waiting in that line. Yeah. And I don't even have to go, but you know, just other than I'm from originally white rock. So you have doctor's appointments or yeah. But there's been times actually where I missed doctor's appointments. And I left like 45 mm -hmm. minutes before it should be a 30 minute drive. You end up missing your doctor's appointment. I mean, what does that cost the taxpayer? But anyways, um, on the Massey tunnel, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to say that this probably doesn't shock any of our, our listeners or group members, but uh, the NDP came out with a with a riveting report that they need to uh, do a little bit more study. Yeah, that's uh, incredibly frustrating because I see my, my constituency office is right there at number five road in Steveston. So every day around two o'clock, the backup starts. Yeah. And right across from my office is Ironwood Plaza, a very popular shopping area. And everybody knows in and around two o'clock, you stay away from it. And just south of Stevenson is, is um, London Drugs, and they have a distribution center. And they've already now threatened to move head office to Alberta. Uh, this week, I was uh, having lunch with a, a friend, and the owner of the restaurant came up to me, and he says, I just lost my chef, Mr. Joe Hall, uh, because of that tunnel. And that was just this week. So it's a significant uh, economic driver of the region, but it's actually impacting the ability for many businesses to do their jobs. So there's a plumbing company that whenever they get called in Richmond that gets called to do a job south of the Fraser, they'll send two plumbers. Not because they need to, but just so they can use the HOV lane now, just to get to the tunnel in a faster, faster manner. That's how businesses are having to deal with this. And it's a constant issue. I get emails all the time from parents where they miss hockey practice or, or soccer games uh, because of that tunnel. And it's not a Richmond tunnel. It's not a, a South Delta tunnel. Uh, it's also Langley residents and South Surrey residents who use it significantly. It's a BC Liberal tunnel. Yes, but it's also a tunnel for tourists who come on Highway 99, right. ferry users. It's the Tawasin First Nations who are building a retail and residential economic base for their community. It's got it's a it's a tunnel for the port, which will expand significantly out in Tawasin because that's where the expansion is going to be, and that's why the BC Liberals built the South Fraser Perimeter Road to eventually move those truck drivers along. So there's been significant uh, work done in preparation for the growth that's already there. Uh, and now we're going to start all over. Five years of consultation. Five years, I think it was our 100 meetings uh, with TransLink, with Richmond City Hall and Delta. We've put a minimum $70 million in. So the project was actually shovel-ready. In one case, a company was bringing in a huge uh, drill just in from Europe. And it got cancelled and they had to send it back. So this is a political decision. This is not a decision based yeah. on on economics. This is not a decision based on environment. We studied everything right down punishment. to punishment. It's punishment. Political punishment. Yes. Because uh there are votes in New Westminster in North Surrey for the for, for the NDP. Mm -hmm. And they see no votes in Richmond, South Delta, Langley, and South Surrey. Mm -hmm. But they don't realize, as I said, you've got a port that's expanding. That bridge is a gateway to Asia for our goods and services. It's also a gateway to Canada and moving goods and services as well. And for them to make a short-sighted decision like that, and now to go back to the drawing board where potentially we won't see a bridge until 2030, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Um, you know, we can talk about, you know, the city of Richmond not liking certain parts of the, the, the bridge. So be it. Let's have that consultation. Let's discuss that. But to stop it and to start it all over again is absolutely ri ridiculous. I mean, you... you the businesses that I hear from, I'm talking about small businesses yeah. that actually have to, I've got a, there's an electrician shop. They have about a hundred electricians. They have to pay two or $3 extra per hour and they, they can afford to do so. 
but just to keep the people there to what they have simply because of that tunnel. And it's, it's, it, it saddens me that that's become political. I, we debate oil pipelines and uh, clearly now we're having fights over natural gas pipelines, but now we're debating bridges. I mean, what's next? Crosswalks? I mean, it's getting to that point. Yeah. And that's the broader message that we're sending is that we're turning into a province and to a certain degree a country of incrementalism. Everything is a fight. And that's not good in regards to attracting longer term uh, development and, and, and dollars uh, into this province. And that scares me because it, right now, the fact that we've canceled this and we're going to start all over again, they can say, oh, it'll only take a couple of years. Well, it, the costs are going to go up. The budget was three and a half billion. The, the cheapest um, uh, bid that we got was actually 2.6. So $900 million under budget. That's what we canceled. A good deal. And I get shots from the NDP all the time now because they've. I actually one day took my car and drove south on Highway 99 to where the sand pile starts. Mm -hmm. And I start and stop my speedometer there. It was six kilometers of sand on the side of the road. And Ian Payton, my colleague from South Delta, had a company sort of do a rough estimate, 600,000 tons of sand. So when Global came, I actually brought my uh, golf clubs and I went golfing on that. I saw but, that day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it annoyed the heck out of the premier. He's taking shots at me at QP, but... Uh, and my, but my my constituents have come up saying, "Good for you for raising the issue," and I'll do whatever means necessary to continue to have I've, that. I've said we should start having um, Richmond area MLA fundraising barbecues on it. We do it absolutely. We you should. Know? We should. <laughs> I Middle of May, put up some hibachis. Yeah, we should get up there and actually, actually, uh, maybe um, have all the fundraisers with the sand. Yeah, well, five bucks for a bag or something. Like yeah, that. yeah. Dubai, you can go sand snowboarding. Yes, so why not? Make it a tourist <laughs> attraction. Why not? Exactly. That's a hundred million dollar pile sand, piles of sand there. Yeah. That's a hundred million dollar sand trap, as I call it. But it just sits there. Oh, we can use it for the patello. It's just sitting there. That's mm -hmm. how sad it is. Like that's how far. Can you actually use it from the patello? Because doesn't it settle and like some of it's going to settle? They said they can use it. Some of they're going to use for fill and other projects. They say, but they said they'd have some of it used by December. And I drove by it again today to take a look. Nothing's been. Yeah, moved. I drive by it all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I, che I checked on it and it's just put it's a ruler to keep measuring how how much it decreases. I know it's just <laughs> you got you got like check those snow uh, those snow plants <laughs> are growing on yeah. it. Plants are growing on it. Now. Yeah, that's it's really. You bad. could set up like a webcam that's constantly Live watching the. Yeah. Like a, with a live Wait, you can feed? put yeah. like a betting pool of how much you think will it, it will decrease monthly. Yeah, <laughs> it can be the all of that. And it's saddening to me because the bridge, the proposal for the bridge included not only HOV lanes, for, but a future SkyTrain to go over it. That was all part of the planning, right? And uh, SkyTrain is driving development everywhere, but particularly mm -hmm. in Richmond that we've seen since the Canada line was moved in. Mm -hmm. And it's going to continue. We need to continue to move that line south of the Fraser all the way out to South Surrey to the 32nd Avenue park and ride, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, that that's uh, really frustrating as a Richmond resident who only had, you know, a, a, a convicted Chinese spy, uh, Malcolm Brody, and I'm not sure the other person to vote for for mayor. But yeah. um, I know one of his main gripes is that, oh, it's just going to line up at the Oak Street. But then in the studies, 50% of the traffic was stopping in Richmond anyways. And with how much yeah. Richmond is growing and how huge, I mean, it takes me. 20 minutes to get from my house in Steveston to my physiotherapist at Lansdowne Station. Wow. That's that's that shouldn't take that long. And it's it, it's first of all, it's a growing city. It's going to continue to do that. Yeah. But you don't stop the building of a bridge to replace the tunnel just because there may be some backup at Oak. Perhaps we need to look at maybe another crossing into Vancouver, which yes. I think, yes. you know, I've heard speculation, potentially Boundary Road. 
and connecting the east-west connector. I and mean, this is just speculation, uh, mind you. But that area, Richmond, Queensboro, you've got the tunnel coming in. You've got the Oak Street Bridge. You've got the east-west connector. You've got the Knight Street Bridge. You've got the Queensboro Bridge. You've got the Alex Fraser Bridge. In many ways, sort of the artery of the lower mainland and keeping traffic moving. Yeah. So you don't just stop. And say, well, you know what? We, we we need to be focusing more on transit. We need to be focusing on all of it at one time. Totally. Because eventually, our electric car population, I think, is about 3 3.5% in this province. That's going to continue to grow significantly. Oh, that's going to grow significantly. Yeah. And it yeah. still needs a bridge at the end of the day, right? And the, So I don't get the, the, well, the, the Democrats. Oh, they don't want to support a bridge because it's a BC liberal bridge. Fine. You didn't want to support Site C either, but now you support that. Like, they're just... All well, over the map. Well, the climate policy. plan wouldn't have worked without uh, Site C. So. Oh, it just <laughs> makes no sense. They're it's, all over the place. It's very short-term thinking for a province that is growing so rapidly yeah. and hopefully continues to grow rapidly. But it's that's the challenge. I mean, that's yeah. uh, you they can't just have a war on the car, and I, I I don't get it because if we're like you said, we're at three percent now. To me, in 10, 20 years, we're going to be at like 50% or more. Yeah. See, I disagree, though, that it's a war on the car. What I think it is, is a new conversation that we have to be having about how we get people and goods moving, whether that be public transit, whether that be in private vehicles, whether that be through ride sharing. These are all things that contribute to a solution. Not one thing is individually going to be a solution. You know what excites me about ride sharing, about the issue of ride sharing? Beyond the fact that we don't have it, what excites me is actually the last mile of ride sharing, which is you take transit to a certain location and it's expensive for TransLink to have a bus service, but the ride sharing is significantly cheaper that that final mile solution actually works for TransLink. That's why they're supportive of ride sharing is it actually augments and helps traditional TransLink, traditional transit, right? Well, actually, on ride sharing, um, I think we have it are. in Richmond, by the way. Yeah, so I, was gonna say, I was just going to say. And if you don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese, it well, may be difficult. You can't be. You can't be ethnically. Like I had a friend <laughs> over on this weekend, and she phoned Richmond Taxi. I think it was like forty-five minute wait or something. Yeah. It was like a thirty-dollar ride, and then she just used the Chinese Uber. It was like thirteen dollars, and it was there. In five or ten minutes and she got taken home in a Porsche. Yeah, well, I've heard that story. That was, so, I, I've heard the... It was. A, it was I a, encourage all, anytime I'm with like well, Asian but, friends that yeah. speak Mandarin or Cantonese, I'm like, just use it and go home. Like, don't feel bad about me. I'm like, if I could do it, I would. Yeah. It's really sad that I can't. The best story I heard uh, in regards to that was just last week was a kid who got a gift from his parents. And this is, this perpetuates every stereotype because it's not true. But in this case, the kid did get a Ferrari, but he didn't want to work. So he was doing the Uber, the Chinese Uber, yeah. and he was taking, using the Ferrari. This is last week. Someone <laughs> told me about this one. And if you go to some of the community centers and park yourself in and around Russia, around three o'clock, you will see these Uber cars. And I'm calling them Uber not, but it's ride sharing. And it's what it tells. First of all, a ride share ride sharing app is not illegal. It's once somebody gets in your vehicle and you're well, giving that ride, that's the legal yeah, part, right? And but it shows you how far behind we really yeah. are. I mean, before yeah. the last election, we introduced a significant amount of policy that would strengthen the taxi industry and bring in ride hailing. And these guys, liberals or new Democrats said, me too, we'll do it in December. December passed, December 2017, not here. December 2018 has passed, nothing. So now we're hearing about the cater Cater, car, the 120 so extra taxis, which will be now slapped with a new name. And then uh, they're gonna, it's, it's a pilot project. I suspect it'll be downtown to the airport. I don't know that though. The pricing is going to be the same. It's kind of like lipstick on a pig at the end of the day, oh, right? It 100% is. Yeah. And then so, and the question that nobody can answer for me is, why is government A choosing a winner when it comes to ride healing? 
it should be up to the consumer based on pricing and service, mm-hmm. right? And we've said that in the last ride-hailing um, hearings. Next one, next week is Groundhog's Day for me. Is I'm starting ride-hailing. Uh, the committee is meeting again publicly to do uh, take uh, to talk to experts. We did this last year. We had a very good report that said, approve it. Here's the direction you should go in regards to the strong taxi industry. We're going to tax you 50 cents, probably a ten, something like that per ride, which would go towards um, uh, greater investment in accessible, accessible cars for those in wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about no surge pricing. There'll be some surge pricing. Let's say you come out of a concert and that sort of thing. But natural disasters, all that stuff is gone. Mm-hmm. So the companies all agreed to all that. They like the idea. Lots of good questions. And it's just here we're meeting again to do the same thing again, which is ridiculous. Now, can I ask you a question with the legislation that the NDP has brought forward on ride sharing, which really doesn't actually enable ride sharing at all? No, it actually bans it. It, do you think that when it, September of this year comes around, mm-hmm. are we actually going to see ride sharing companies launching in British Columbia? Or do you think that it's going to just be these cater vehicles that are kind of, as you say, a lipstick on Uh, the peg? Yeah. Well, what makes ride sharing? Well, ride sharing is successful because individuals, once they pass uh, a mechanical inspection, they uh, pass a, a, a criminal record check, they're driving you around. Well, it's flexible enough where you could be working for two or three ride hailing companies. If you got two hours here, two hours there. So first of all, once you say somebody has to have a class four instead of just a class five, you're reducing your pool of drivers. Yeah. That's significant. That could impact the ability of ride hailing companies to operate in this province. Then you bring in geofencing. You can only operate in a certain contained area, Vancouver proper, let's say. So that makes it difficult. Those two specifically, geofencing and class four, class five. That's going to make it difficult for some of these companies to the end of the day say, we're going to come. And two, the pool of people is what you need. You need retired folks. You need students who want to make a few bucks on the weekend, right? Hey, look, tonight's uh, tonight's a big uh, Jay-Z's and Beyonce are in town. I know it's going to be busy at Rogers Arena. I'm going to to work those four hours in and around downtown bucks to be made. So the pool has to pool of people have to be there. That's how ride healing works. Yeah. And but and, it's not. Well, with the uh, geofencing as well, part of the original concept of ride sharing when it was invented was, hey, I'm driving from here A to B. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. say you're commuting from Richmond or Maple Ridge into downtown Vancouver during the day. Mm-hmm. And you've got four extra spots in your yeah. car. And all of a sudden you can take someone that pays your gas money and then you take someone back in the evening. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe you're dropping them yep. off on your way. I go but to this geofencing actually yeah. prevents the carpooling, which actually reduces yeah. GHG. Well, like, this is where where yeah. ride sharing actually has the environmental impact where and, it reduces. And, and I would emissions. argue the taxi folks do have some legitimate concerns around insurance. And why am I paying a thousand, two thousand dollars a month? When the person who's working for ride hailing, um, basically the minute they log on as a driver and then you 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 order that vehicle, they are automatically covered by insurance by Uber or Lyft or the local company. So that's that that portion of the drive uh, where you're an actual Uber driver, insurance is covered. You have extra insurance, but it's still Uber will cover that as part of your driver's deal. The average taxi guy is going to be paying a thousand, two thousand bucks a month. So there's this. There are some things that need to change, which under the BC Liberal plan 
address some of those issues. We own the insurance company. We can do this, mm-hmm. right? And so I want a strong taxi industry because they're still going to be the folks you're going to be hailing at the taxi stands, at the hotels. So you need both. Once again, competition is needed and it cannot just be one particular company given the, given the advantage. So speaking of competition, mm-hmm. um, there's a competition going on right now in my um in my apartment racing down to the mailboxes to see who gets to opt out of the spec tax first. <laughs> and oh, I'm just wondering what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, it's just, it, first of all, we were talking about the balkanization of policy and the same thing. They've arbitrarily picked these communities in regards to, uh, the speculation tax. Whistler, by the way, is excluded. And one of the reasons probably is because they probably, I think, send over a billion dollars in tax revenue to the government every year, mm-hmm. right? Because it's such a great place to visit. So it's kind of arbitrary. It's having a huge impact in places like Nanaimo where one side you're going to pay, one side, the other side you're not. I had a constituent come in and he said, yes. He goes, he, he, he bought a place in North Delta condo. His, he's of South Asian descent. He builds you know, three or four houses a year, small-time developer, but he bought a condo. His parents lived in Surrey, so he's wanted them to move in with him, with the family. Delta he, Rise? Uh, some, some, somewhere yeah. there. Yeah, I didn't yeah. ask. But he bought it so because his parents are, are, are church going, or temple-going folks, and they go to the temple, Sikh temple there in Surrey, and the, the services start very early in the morning, so he spends the week, they spend the weekend at the, at the condo. Well, now he's got to pay a spec tax, right? He can afford to have it. He pay, makes the payments. Uh, he has a house in Richmond. He bought he bought it so the grand his parents can go to the temple, and sometimes they take the little their kids with them, their grandkids with them for the weekend. So it's a bit of a weekend trip. He can afford to pay for it. He's paying all his taxes, and now he's got to pay a spec tax. He's not renting it out, and so that's the kind of stuff where you're hitting number one everyday working people who've saved a little bit and now have to pay a spec tax. It's ridiculous. And then the negative option billing, I'm old enough. You guys certainly aren't. I'm old enough when I actually did the negative option billing story when Rogers Cable was nailing everybody with this in the 1990s. It was a national story. I remember the CEO had to fly out to Vancouver because this is sort of the epicenter of the anger. Ted Rogers. Yeah, it was It was just, it was, uh, it was amazing to watch in regards to the Canadians actually, I'm so mad I'm not going to take it anymore kind of thing. Mm-hmm. CEO had to fly out, apologized, and we got to the point where we made it illegal except for government. The thing, going back to what you said earlier, too, about everything becoming a fight, look at the U.S. I mean, how ridiculous is it to have your government shut down? You're not paying air traffic controllers. You're not paying. Yeah. I mean, what other country on earth would you not be paying your airport screeners if a 9-11 type event happened in your country? And all for a wall, a wall at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. has got tremendous amount of security at the southern border. It's always being... um, I know they do. I actually climbed that wall last May. (laughs) No joke. There's photos on Facebook, if you don't believe me. But they've they've drawn... they've, They've always spent a lot of money. They're always going to do to do that this is a political exercise once again i have to be seen fighting for the wall i have to have a wall because i have to get reelected mm-hmm. but it doesn't again. it 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 doesn't he isn't focusing on bigger issues which is the rise of asia and where does the us and the, where does the us and the western world fit within that context how do we protect and preserve our democracy but at the end of the day how do we keep our economy strong as well because what we're up against is uh, one-party states, in the case of China, but also straight-run firms, which have an advantage over some of our private corporations. The combined economic output of Asia surpasses that of Europe and North America combined about the mid-2020s. So very soon, very soon. Um, the world sort of tilts back to its original axis where the economic center is going to be Asia. 
right? Next, I think in next 30 years, it'll be China, U.S., and India, the top three economies. But Indonesia's growing, Thailand's growing, Philippines are doing well. Um, Korea. All, Korea, all those countries, and Japan as well. So that's sort of shifting back to the original, or its original axis. So how do we compete and how do we thrive in that? Because if you want to protect our healthcare system and our education system, that's the question of our time. The story of our time isn't the Taliban, it isn't Trump, it isn't Brexit. It's the consumption patterns of Asians in this next half century. They drive everything. If the Chinese eat more meat, that means they need refrigerators, which means more uh, more animals grazing on our farmland, even though we need to have more food grown as population grows as well. The right? only thing I would say that we, we're beating them on big time is is xenophobia. Because, I mean, if you look at Japan's... Japan, yeah. No, the government... It's serious. The government mm-hmm. um, of both... Pretty much, uh, Japan, South Korea—they're coming towards like an aging population and population decline mm-hmm. that we've never seen in human history. Yeah. Whereas, then that, but then they're rather xenophobic. Like in Korea, I think they just sent over—they um, uh, just kicked out like the only hundred refugees they'd ever accepted mm-hmm. from the Middle East or something like last month. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are like smart people that in Canada, they become doctors, they become lawyers, they become teachers, they become really important taxpaying citizens that help us sustain our population. Mm -hmm. And they do so the same in the States and in Europe, more or less. Mm -hmm. I do see that becoming something where we could see a a problem. Yeah, look, they're going to have their some of them are ancient civilizations. We are young, young countries that haven't allowed some of those stereotypes and anger and and those types of um, uh, the challenges are different for us. Like Canada is a quiet geopolitical cul-de-sac in the grand scheme of things. We've got a big neighbor to the south of us. They buy our products. We've had it lucky. We've had it good. But we've got to find new ways to engage with Asia and accept some of these state run firms, accept some of the challenges they're going to have. Like They're building really smart um, uh, think tanks in a lot of these countries. They're building processes and systems where Asia is doing a better job cooperating. But we have to find new ways to sell our products. And 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 I think the xenophobia you're seeing in the U.S., uh, where there's pushback to a a multi ethnic society, b a new rise in in in, in the China and its impact it's going to have in the United States. I mean, this is just the start. The fight over technology, you know. Trump can protect all the coal-fired plants that he wants. But more have closed under him than under Obama. Yeah, and, and that's because that's consumer consumer driven at the end of the day. But how are we competing against in regards to technology, artificial intelligence? Those are the kind of things that we're going to be actually having um, a conversation about. So I think in this country, we have to keep building our infrastructure to compete. And I view Asia as a, an opportunity for all of us to expand our economies. We've done so well with it the last twenty years in regards to building those, uh, building those, um, those bridges. But and there's going to be. Chunk- I think the BC Liberals can definitely take credit for is expanding BC's trade relationships beyond yeah. the United States and expanding. Well, LNG is a classic example. Is, are we going to be selling it seventy-five years from now? Of course not. But right now, to help the globe. Getting China off coal, coal and India yes, off coal yes. is is very important. First of all, those two countries collectively represent 40% of humanity. And the only thing they're doing is following our development model. We did the same thing for 200 years as the Western world mm-hmm. from the Industrial Revolution. It's not fair for us to tell them that they can't. Well, it's not even cheap. fair. They're not going to listen to us. They're yeah, gonna, I mean, yeah. China's growth, rapid industrialization from 1980 to 2010. So that's 30 years. They've taken 560 million people out of extreme poverty. It's the largest poverty reduction program in the, on the planet in the history of mankind. And India can continue to do what they're doing 
by the next by in the next 20 years they're still about 20 years behind in china and their development it's a different type of development with the private sector but significant changes there in regards to poverty and that's the issue and what's happened as these countries live better and eat better the population uh, kids per, fa- per 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 woman is coming down like china is down to 1.6 kids uh, they've had a significant drop uh, in in uh, in births this year i think it's 10 million less than what they usually expect. So you're seeing that decline. They are going to age. They're going to have some challenges there. India is the same way. When the British left in 1947, six kids per family. In 1980, it was four. Today, it's 2.6. You'll want to get them down under 2.1. And people say, well, you know, you can't replace the population. There's too many of us on this planet, in my opinion. 7.6 billion. We're going to hit 10 billion probably by 2050 to 2060. Somewhere along the way, we're going to peak just in and around there, maybe 11 billion. And then... The long-term decline begins. And the best thing I think you can do for climate change beyond living cleaner lives and getting away from fossil fuels is just less people on this planet. So you want development there because you're having less kids. Because more people, not only just talking about burning fossil fuels, it's food security and it's water security. Like I've traveled the Ganges, and that's probably the breadbasket of India, 400 million people. The, the, the river is shrinking because when it come, it's all fed by the Gangotri Glacier in the Himalayas. It, they're melting. They're not what they used to be. We see our winters change as well. Significant changes. You have dams in China that feed Vietnam. You have dams in India that feed into Pakistan as well. You pull back on those dams. Our India tries to divert some of that. Those are potential flashpoints for war. So the future war, it could be over water, right? So at its core, less people on this planet is a good thing because the impact we're having is so significant. Food, energy, and water security. And that's what I talk about in regards to consumption patterns. If you, if we're going to hit 10 billion, 11 billion, we're going to actually have to uh, increase our food um, production by 50% in the next 50 years, right? So we're going to change farming. But we also need to make sure people live dignified lives so we can have less people on this planet because that's the best thing you can actually do with climate change is less human beings, yeah. right? And that's where you need to get to. So there are significant challenges, but I think BC is in a great place to play a role and deal with some of that stuff. But we got to get smart rather than fighting over a pipeline or a bridge. Let's do it, focus on where we can lead the world and also help the world move forward as well. I think a lot of people actually don't know what our LNG is going for. No. I, I think a lot of like the the NIMBYs, the anti-everything crowd, I think they just equate any fossil fuel any anything yeah. right whereas really like same when i lived in korea when i first got there almost all the cars were gas yeah when i left almost all of them were lng yeah taxis anyway yeah and it's also just we're a population of five million people right so that's one third the city of new delhi one fourth the population of the city of beijing in asia we're called a suburb <laughs> and we forget that yeah. we forget that right like if bc plays I remember we crunched the numbers for this. A BC place was 55,000 seats. If that represented, a full BC place represented all the GHG in the world. Of those 55,000 people, 13,000 is China, right? 11,000 is the United States. You know how many would be British Columbia? 76 seats. And you know what one coal-fired plant in China would be? 20 people. So four coal-fired plants in China creates more GHG than British Columbia because of forward-thinking people like W.A.C. Bennett. We built the dams. We continue to build the dam with Site C. Yep. So it shows you, let's let's have a conversation about what's real. It's a global issue. Like the studies done at the University of Oregon. It takes 11 days for the air to move from China 
to Oregon, the West Coast. The particulate matter from Beijing is coming over to the West Coast. You're seeing it here. So are we really going to debate whether or not we build a plant here? Or do you want to make sure Asia still rise, the standard of living rises, yes. while we get cleaner? Drive it lower, right? Drive, the, drive that uh, production of GHGs lower. And that's the issue. So the conversation here has to mature. And that's the challenge. Yeah, that's what traveling and, and journalism has sort of taught me. Is sometimes it does get frustrating as a public official, as an MLA now. I don't think we're having the right conversation. All politics is local. We need to be doing a lot of things here as well. But we never, we sometimes get away from that broader international view. And that frustrates me sometimes. And I kind of keep reminding myself, all politics is local. Their perspective <laughs> is Richmond. Their perspective is Vancouver. Perspective is BC rather than over there, which you kind of don't think about. Uh, right. I think that ties into the millennial voters is I think a lot of millennials are looking not just at their place in their hometown or in their country. It's as a global citizen. Yeah. How do you better change the world? And I think the conversation, first of all, comes is is ha, it has to come down to us political leaders. We've done a poor job, I think, broadly speaking, in in having that broader conversation. So the political leadership has to change in how they communicate. And one of them, as we said from day one, was younger folks getting involved in politics because you can speak to millennials because you are millennials. And I don't think the conversation has been the right one. Too much industrial focus, not enough broader holistic conversation that needs to happen. So, Fair enough. Well, we had more we wanted to get to, but I think we're running out of time. You're just, you've been a great guest. So thanks a lot for... Uh... You guys have been great hosts. This has been fun. I could go all night. This is, this is, invite me back. I hope we can have yeah, that conversation. Sure, you sure. know, Well um, done, guys. This is so important. I'm a huge podcast fan pop, and I've done it. I've been watching or um, listening to podcasts probably for 10 years. In fact, when I was on Global National, we were the first national newscast to actually have an, an audio podcast, but then we're the first national newscast to have a video podcast. I used to listen to it when I was yeah. over Global National. Yeah, yeah, Global National. Kevin I watched it every day on the way to work. I remember when we first launched it, Kevin, I was in the edit suite, Kevin comes over to me, he goes, Jazz, 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 you got to see this. And he goes, because he knew I was such a huge podcasting fan, and I was so proud of that. So I'm glad we're getting to the point we're actually having this discourse in this great studio, uh, because it isn't just old, good old-fashioned radio anymore, and you can talk ideas, and you can talk longer, and have fun, and in this sort of great setting. So I hope you guys keep doing this and I wish you guys all the best all the success thank you very much yeah thanks for coming on my pleasure